Today on Blue 58, the Packers are shuffling their roster and making tweaks as their path to the playoffs gets shorter and shorter. We'll assess their moves before taking a look at some listener questions. And boy, people have a lot on their minds this week. Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast of thepowersweep.com. I'm your host, John Meerdink. Happy to be with you here for another episode. We've got a couple roster-related topics to touch on before I take a look at a bunch of listener questions today. I want to kind of go rapid fire through a bunch of different things that we've had pop up uh, in our Discord server this week. So uh, we're going to do that. Take a look at as many as we can. Before we do that, though, I do want to issue one of our final reminders that our charity campaign is coming to an end. Donations are still coming in. Prizes still there to be had. We'll have the drawing uh, after the first of the year once uh, once the drive is officially over. So everybody gets a shot at uh, getting one of the 25 things we have up for grabs. I uh, would encourage you to donate. It can be any amount to any of the four charities we are supporting. So take a look at the post with all the details at thepowersweep.com. Uh, there is a link to that in your show description here as well. All right. Four big roster moves to discuss. The Packers have re-signed Elton Jenkins to a contract extension. They've sent Dean Lowry to injured reserve. They've signed Bo Melton from the Seattle Seahawks practice squad, and they've released uh, Tipa Naliai from their injured reserve list. In order, Elton Jenkins re-signing, I think, makes a lot of sense for both sides. And I think both sides, if you're looking at it from the contract negotiation perspective here, can kind of claim victory. Uh, Jenkins gets big time offensive lineman money, top 15 by some metrics, top 510 by others. It's a lot, but which obviously is win for him. But on the other side, if you're the Packers, I think you're happy that you're not resetting the market, not at guard, not at tackle. And that's good. Uh, so you're getting good value, uh, from the Packers side and you're getting a lot of money if you're Elton Jenkins. Plus he's got an opportunity to earn some more money with some incentives in there. If he makes Pro Bowl or All-Pro at guard or left tackle, uh, he can get a, a a little bit of extra money. Not a little bit of extra money, a significant amount of extra money. There's some some significant bonuses tied in there uh, to him making money at, um, or making the Pro Bowl or, or All-Pro list. I think that's a, that's a compromise uh, for the Packers and an opportunity for Jenkins. They still want the flexibility to move him around. They don't want to tie him to playing tackle or guard. And Jenkins says, fine, but if you're going to move me around, I want to get paid for playing well wherever you end up putting me, which seems like a pretty fair compromise. I don't think we get a lot of true win-win contracts in professional sports. This strikes me as a guy who does not negotiate contracts as being pretty close. It's good to see. And I know we did talk about probably a little bit of excessive hand-wringing about, you know, what is Elton Jenkins' future in Green Bay? Do you really want to give him top-of-market money? Well, you don't. You didn't give him top-of-market here, not the absolute tip-top top of the market. And I think it would rather roll the dice on Jenkins being close to as good as he was in, in 2021 and 2020 in 2023 and beyond than I would to see, you know, to save the money and see him go elsewhere. Plus, down the stretch here, he's looked a lot better than he did early in the season, and I think that's all tied to ACL recovery. Uh, just December 4th, I think 2021 was when he tore his ACL in Minnesota. So we're, we're still just barely past a year. And if he's coming along and looking better as the season goes on, I think you can be confident about the future. The other moves here, Dean Lowry to injured reserve has a calf injury. That means maybe we'll see a little bit more of Devontae Wyatt, which we got to see against the Dolphins. Good stuff. Maybe even some Jonathan Ford, the man, the myth, the legend will, will potentially get on the field as a result. 
Uh, the corresponding move there is that the Packers signed uh, 2022 seventh-round pick Bo Melton uh, from the Seattle Seahawks to their active roster. When you sign somebody from somebody's practice squad, you have to put them on your 53. That's how that works. I think we all know that by now. But just to clarify, that's why they made the move the way they did. Melton's a pretty good tester. Relative athletic score of 9.24. He's small, which is interesting for reasons that we'll talk about here in a second. But 5'10", 189 pounds, good. Ran a 4'3", 40-yard dash. We like to see that. Good agility numbers. 38-inch vertical at 5'10", 5'11". Pretty good stuff. Uh, A good athlete overall. It is interesting that they go with a small wide receiver, a bit of a tendency breaker for Brian Gutekunst. His preference for large, well-built receivers is pretty well established at this point. But Melton is not necessarily that. He's more of the traditional slot receiver sort of mold. He was productive as a punt returner and kick returner at Rutgers, also fairly productive as a wide receiver, like mid-600 yards uh, each of the last three seasons he was at Rutgers, so so not too bad there. Uh, if you like Dane Brugler's uh, The Beast draft guide, which we cite a lot every year, he was uh, Brugler's number 20 wide receiver in that guide this year, which was ahead of where Romeo Dobbs was, so just if you're looking for a point of comparison. Trying to contextualize this move, I think of it as just another, say the Packers had another seventh round pick. They just took two wide receivers and just it, instead of just Ture. We have spent quite a bit of time talking about potentially consequential late season additions for the Packers. I'm not saying this is one of those moves, but this is that kind of move. The Packers aren't signing Melton just for this year. In theory, they'd like to get a look at him for this year and 2023 and beyond. This is late season, preseason, in a way. They want to have him on the roster, get a look at him, see what he can do. And I think that explains a little bit of the tendency break too. It's a pretty low stakes addition. So the Packers can do some different things here and just see how they feel about a guy who doesn't fit a lot of their traditional molds. What can he do? What do we want to do with him? Does he play that sort of Tyler Irvin jet sweep role? Does he return punts? Does he return kicks? We'll see. Finally, the Packers have released uh, Tiba Naliai. Been something of a fascination for this podcast for the past couple of years because he's just so he was so thin, so thin for an edge rusher, mid two hundred twenty pound range. Despite having pretty good length, he was fairly productive as a pass rusher at times last year. But this year, did not play a single snap on defense. An exclusively special teams teams player, which is fine. You you need guys like that too. But uh, landing on injured reserve ultimately sends him out of Green Bay. Not a huge loss here, but. Um, the end of an era, I guess, for Mr. Mr. Naliai. And it does end the distinction of the Packers having signed two players who wore the same jersey number at the same college at the same time. Both Naliai and Jordan Love wore number 10 at Utah State at the same time. There's a little tiny historical nugget there for you. Okay, a bunch of questions here. I want to go through these pretty fast uh, because there's a bunch of different topics here, and I've just listed them in the order that I've received them. And I did receive them in the Power Sweeps Discord server, which of course is a benefit of being a patron of, uh, of the Power Sweep. So head to patreon.com slash the Power Sweep. Uh, contribute any monthly amount or any yearly amount you like. Uh, maybe check out the Jeff Bezos luxury tier. I, I will come record an episode of the podcast at your house if you contribute at that level. Uh, please don't do that. I would feel terribly guilty if you gave the maximum 
Patreon monthly contribution. I really just put it on there to see how much you could theoretically give at a time. Turns out there is an upper limit. So uh, select any tier, select any dollar amount you like. You'll be invited to the Discord server. You can participate asking questions like this and have some great discussion with Packers fans from all over the world. It's a great place to hang out, and I enjoy spending time in there every single day. So just in order that we've received them over the past few days, there's been a lot of lively conversation, as I think you'll see here. First, I have the beer holder comes out of the gate talking Hall of Fame. The question was just reading an article on shoe-in Hall of Fame candidates on NFL.com. Not many has has as many had as many All Pro selections as David Bakhtiari. If his career ended this year, do you think he'd make the Hall? I do. I think David Bakhtiari is a Hall of Fame player, and I think if you're looking at the case for Bakhtiari, even if it ended now. There was a time, probably 2015 to 2000, well, right up to 2020 when he tore his ACL, where he was among the best offensive linemen in the league. And then I would say probably 2018 to 2020, he was probably the best, if not lineman in the league, certainly the best left tackle. If you're going to go three to five years being one of the best at your position in the NFL, and then a significant amount of that time being the very best at your position, I think you've got a pretty good case. On top of that, if you're presenting him as an all-pro all player, uh, you talk about the the great teams he was a part of, you know, 2014, 2016, 2020. Uh, he was a significant part of those teams. And if you look at how the Packers played in 2020 and 2021 without him, they're probably two Super Bowls short two Super Bowl appearances short, uh, just because David Bakhtiari was not on the field. That's how consequential he has been as a player in his Packers career. I think he is a Hall of Fame player. First ballot, second ballot, who knows? I, I think he makes it in at some point. FMP 330 writes, what were Dean Lowry's PFF grades? Something very average, if not below average, I presume. And how about Devontae Wyatt's? So I won't bore you with the exact precise numbers because they're hard to contextualize anyway, but I will tell you that Lowry had graded out across the board below average this year. Pretty much career lows in almost every category too. Of note, posting the lowest pass rush grade of his career which basically tracks with, I think, what we've seen from him on the field. He also had one of his worst run defense grades so far this year as well. I don't think that's a huge surprise to anybody. For comparison, though, Devontae Wyatt's grades have been, by and large, pretty similar to Lowry. Though he is significantly better as a pass rusher, they're still both on the lower end, but he has been better than Lowry. However, I don't know if he's played enough for his grades to really stabilize, I do think grading guys is a worthwhile process. I think the way that PFF does it is generally pretty sound. There are exceptions you can talk about. We we spent a lot of time a few years ago talking about the bad grade they gave Aaron Rodgers in a game where he threw like five touchdowns, whatever it was against the Chiefs in 2016. Those are the exceptions, though. Generally, I think their approach is solid, and uh, it, it's it's a starting point, if nothing else. And they generate a lot of other interesting data, too. That being said, if Wyatt is only playing single-digit snaps per game, I'm not sure a grade is really capturing who he is as a player. I would be more interested in seeing the, the individual play grades, which is something, of course, that they don't offer. I, I would pay a lot for that kind of data. I wish we could see it. Um, I wish there were people who graded things publicly that would, would say, this is how I graded each guy on each individual play and why. Not there yet. Perhaps someday. 
but we're not there yet. Uh, Wyatt, though, I think is has significant upside over Lowry, as, we, as we've talked about on the show, just due to his athleticism. I think the floor is higher. I think the ceiling is higher on Lowry, and I would love to get him a little bit more time out there, and I think we're going to get that now. The Jet Sweep guy asks, how much is a top-end kick returner worth? This came in some context around, uh, for, for some context, the discussion around this was about how much theoretically we'd want to pay Keyshawn Nixon if the Packers are interested in bringing him back uh, after this season. So for comparison, Devin Hester, the greatest, for sure, I would say punt returner of all time, maybe kick and punt returner if you want to get, if you want to split hairs, uh, a guy like Cordero Patterson, who we'll talk about in a second here, um, might have a case against him just on pure kick returns. But Hester, a great returner. I think everyone will agree on that. Uh, at his peak, he was counting about $7 million per year against the uh, the Chicago Bears cap. Uh, so that'd be 2008, 2009. He was on a four-year, $40 million contract around that point. And you know that the numbers get a little wonky as to exactly how the cash flow works. But I think just looking at the cap figure, $7 million against the Bears cap is a pretty good ballpark of where he was. That works out to about 5 or 6% uh, of their of their salary cap. Cordero Patterson, meanwhile, one of the great contemporary returners, certainly kickoff returners, here are his last four contracts that he has signed in the NFL. Two years, $8.5 million, two years, $10 million, one year, $3 million, and then two years, uh, about $10 million. So he's counting against his respective teams. You've got the the Raiders, the Patriots, and the Falcons in there, uh, the Bears in there too, uh, about $5 million per year against their caps maybe a little bit lower once you account for bonuses and other things like that. So a really good returner, and both of these guys added a little bit elsewhere too. Patterson, a, a plus running back in the ways that, that teams used him. Hester, certainly an interesting wide receiver at times. He did leave, lead the Bears in receiving for one season uh, and useful in, in other ways as you know, sort of a gadget sort of player for about every team he played for. But a guy who is an elite returner and can add a little bit else elsewhere on the roster – Five to seven million seems pretty good per year. So the question then, I guess, to extend from what the jet sweep guy here is asking, would you pay Keyshawn Nixon, say, a two-year $10 million contract? I kind of think I would. Maybe two years, $8 million. Maybe as high as two years or $12 million. I don't know if I'd go specifically that high, but depending on where the rest of the, the Packers cap money goes, yeah, I, I would be interested in in something like that, especially considering that he's done some pretty good work on the Packers in the Packers secondary. Now, you, you haven't wanted to play him just tons and tons of snaps, but next year he's probably not going to have to because you'll still have Jair under contract. You'll still have Eric Stokes under contract. You'll still have Rasul Douglas under contract, though maybe he ends up at safety or something like that. But he's not going to need to play a huge role in the secondary. So for a guy who gives you value covering punts, returning punts, returning kicks, plus a little bit of work in the secondary, five, $6 million a year doesn't sound like that bad a deal to me. In a shift to something completely different here, our regular question asker, Queso, asks, who would run the full length of a football field faster, Christian Watson or a cheetah? It's the cheetah. Uh, we are regular visitors to the great Toledo Zoo, and one of the things we like to do there is ride the zoo train, and one of the places that the zoo train goes is right past the cheetah exhibit. So I have these facts and figures lodged into my brain quite well, 
But as everybody knows, the Cheetah's top speed is somewhere between 60 and 70 miles an hour. According to the tour guys on the Toledo Zoo Zoo train, they can reach that top speed in about three seconds, three to four seconds if you're if they're having a bit of a slow day. And they can run at top speed for five to seven minutes. So even Christian Watson on his best day is only going to run about 22 miles an hour, between 21 and a half and 22 miles an hour, if you believe the NFL advanced analytics tracking data and things like that. That's not quite 60 to 70 miles an hour, and he's not getting up to top speed fast enough to outrun a cheetah. So it's going to be the cheetah fairly handily there. But that led to another question uh, from QHM, who regularly writes into the show as well. Speaking of speed, had Usain Bolt actually attempted to play a football game at a prime age, could he have made the transition? So this was something that was a bit of an an internet... um, kind of hypothetical for a while when Usain Bolt was winning gold medal after gold medal as an Olympic sprinter. People look at the size, they look at the stride length, they look at what he looks like running, and they think, wow, NFL wide receiver. Could it have worked? World-class speed, great build, could it have happened? I want to say yes, because it's not as unusual as you might think. Other guys have tried Uh, Justin Gatlin, the great American sprinter, actually had a workout with the Philadelphia Eagles, and boy, I wanted that to happen. He ended up having a PED-related suspension, I believe, around the same time, so that kind of scuttled that entire idea. Or maybe it was due to to being away from track and field that he even tried that in the first place. The Packers actually signed a, a sprinter named Leo Bookman about 10 to 12 years ago, spent some time in Green Bay. They had him hand timed in the low four threes, high four twos. 40 yard dash time, so he could absolutely fly too. It, it's been done before. And if you look further back in history, Bob Hayes, of course, proved it could be done. Uh, one of the great nicknames in football history, Bullet Bob, also was a tremendous football player in college, though. Cliff Branch, kind of in the same mold with the Raiders. It's been done before. The big question would be whether or not Bolt could actually play football. Can he handle contact? Does he want to handle contact? Can he catch the ball? You would like to think so. Um, obviously, he's a great athlete. The the phrase world-class barely applies to him because he's almost in an entirely different class, a sort of athlete that you only see once or twice in your lifetime if you're lucky. That kind of dominance for that amount of time is just, well, it, it is, I think, unprecedented. Uh, you would think he'd be able to pick up some of the things that a football player could do that would make him a useful player. Maybe more to the point, I would love to see teams try more things like this. Try to find guys from non-traditional talent routes. Try different things. It doesn't just have to be, you know, the college draft. There are international football players now. You might as well look. There are, you know, all sorts of other alternative pro leagues, the USFL, the XFL, scouring leagues like that, finding guys with non-traditional paths to football is can be, I think, a competitive advantage. And you owe it to yourself to at least look. Now, a guy like Usain Bolt, maybe that's, shooting for the moon a little bit too much, but I think it could have worked if you put him in the right circumstances. If you just get him in a situation where he can run fast, nobody's as fast as Usain Bolt. We've got a couple more from QHM here, so we'll just list those off. First, what's your biggest complaint with the Matt LaFleur offense specifically in 2022? For a second, I thought this was going to be a complicated question, but the the moment I sat down and actually thought about it for a second, it's pretty obvious. And it should be obvious what it would be if you know the sort of things that I like in football. It's tight ends. The Packers either don't have the tight ends to really contribute to this offense, or they just don't use them particularly well. It's pretty 
basic tight end stuff. You have a guy who lines up like a blocker, like Mercedes Lewis, and you've got a guy who's going to run the behind the line of scrimmage route, whatever you call that, on those those boot play action plays that are so common to the the Shanahan tree version of the West Coast offense or whatever you call this, the Shanahan tree offense. That's basically it. Robert Tunyon made a, a lot of catches doing that exact thing in 2020. Josiah DeGuara has done things like that. Tyler Davis has done things like that. The Packers just don't get all that much out of their tight ends. And part of that, I think, is due to the design of the offense. It's it's a frustration for me because I like to watch good tight end play. And it could just be that the Packers don't have a tight end that Lafleur can really utilize. It also seems a lot of like a like there's a fair amount of we've tried nothing and we're all out of ideas again. We talked about that on the defensive line this year. While on offense, I think at tight end, you have the the same thing popping up there. They haven't tried a whole lot, but it also doesn't seem like they're they're looking to try that much. Finally, third question from QHM here, given your heritage, what is your favorite of all the numerous Danish pastries? And why is it the Dutch letter? So I got to go a little bit outside the, the question here because um, the Danish pastries, I can all kind of take or leave, but there are a number of Danish pastries that I do like. The king of all of them, though, is the Olibolen. I am a little bit biased, but Cedar Grove, Wisconsin, the city from which I hail, has the greatest ethnic festival in the world, Hollandfest. Uh, every final weekend of July, you can go there. You can get all sorts of Dutch goodies and hang out with the fine people of Cedar Grove, uh, most of whom you will either know or be related to if you're from the city like I am. And uh, for a long, long time, my grandpa's sister, my great aunt Carolyn, ran the Ole Bullen stand at at Hollandfest, and she was in charge of making sure all of the Ole Bullen got made and uh, and selling them and organizing it, and she did a phenomenal job. So it will always hold a special place in my heart, and uh, that is always a priority for me when I do make it out uh, to Hollandfest. Got to have some. So that is my favorite Dutch pastry. No Misery wants to focus on history for a second. Which Packers player of former decades would you like to see most in today's team? I would like to see three guys. Three guys always come to mind for me. First, I would like to see how James Lofton works in a modern offense. Because Christian Watson can do some pretty cool things for the Packers here in 2022. What does James Lofton look like if you transport him from the late 70s, early 80s into 2022? Because even in that era of football, the passing game was coming along. It isn't what it is today. And James Lofton, a tremendous athlete, look up some of the videos of him running track even well into his 30s. He could fly then. What can he do on an NFL football field in 2022? I think it's going to look a lot like Christian Watson, but maybe at a Hall of Fame caliber level, because that's where Lofton ended up. And not saying that that Watson is not going to end up there yet, but we know what Lofton was for sure. Uh, What could he do now in 2022? The next would be Reggie White. I mean, if the Packers need help on defense, you'd be hard-pressed to do any better than Reggie White. I've seen some interesting takes on White uh, as they pertain to J.J. Watt recently, with Watt announcing his retirement. Some people have called Watt the best defensive player of all time, or, or are talking about him in that in that comparison. And to be sure, his peak was was great. I think you need to look at uh, at White's longevity. And I think, honestly, you've got to look at White's availability too. He didn't miss a whole lot of games in his career. 
And even playing with a bad back late in his career, he was still a, a pretty dominant force on on a down-to-down basis. I'm not sure Watt can, when, can say that exact same thing, though I'm, I'm willing to, to look at the arguments there. And really, player comparison is not something that I, I really am all that invested in anyway. J.J. Watt, a great player. Reggie White, also a great player. That's about as, as far as I'm really willing to go. But just looking from Packers history, White was a tremendous force even in Green Bay, relatively late in his career. If you could get like early 80s version of Reggie White and put him on the Packers, I think he might win games all by himself, uh, just with the level of physical dominance that he had on display at some times there. Finally, and this might be a little bit off the map here, but I would like to see what uh, Jim Taylor could do in a modern offense too. The consummate just sledgehammer, I guess technically fullback, we have to say, uh, given the, the nomenclature of the time but just a, a physical force at running back. One of the first people in, in Packers history to really embrace lifting weights. People thought he was a weirdo at the time for, for training with weights. They thought it made him bulky and slow. I mean, you pull up t- uh, highlights of Jim Tabler, Taylor running. Do you tell me, do you mean to tell me that he looks bulky and slow there? If that's what bulky and slow looks like, well, just get out of the way because he's going to run straight through you. Uh, I would like to see what he could do running in a modern offensive scheme because he did plenty of good stuff in Lombardi's scheme. Uh, what could he do with even more modern blocking? And Lombardi's was was plenty modern too. Uh, what could he do in 2022? I'd, I'd love to see it, especially as a counterpart to a guy like Aaron Jones. Old Packers fan brings us home with a question about the Packers defensive coordinator situation. Assuming that Barry gets fired after the season, who would be your favorite to replace him? It looks like Leonard, Fangio, and Aviro would all be available. Which would you prefer? So we've talked about this a little bit in the past. It's going to come up again. Might as well put another capper on this. I think in order, I would like Jim Leonard, Ajiro Aviro, and Vic Fangio. Leonard consistently gets mentioned as one of the innovators at the college football level. He can defend college spread offenses. He can rush the passer. He can make things miserable for teams that want to run RPO stuff. That seems like the sort of cutting edge hire that I would like to see in Green Bay. Ajiro Averro, I, I don't think you're going wrong there. We spoke at length about why we thought the Packers should go like him or with a guy like him recently. Uh, a younger perspective, somebody who's still on the upswing in their career, um, new ideas, I think he would be a great hire. And obviously it's worked out pretty well in Denver. He may have an opportunity to be the head coach there in the in the relatively near future, or he may be getting head coach looks elsewhere. It seems well-deserved at this point. Fangio, I don't think you can go wrong either. Obviously the godfather of this entire little mini Fangio movement over the past few years. They call it the Vic Fangio tree for a reason, because he's the guy that inspired all the things that all these successful young defensive coordinators are doing why not bring in the guy behind it all? And it's worth mentioning, back in 2018, when the Packers hired Mike Pettin, Vic Fangio was their first choice. He was the first guy that Mike McCarthy reached out to, but Fangio didn't want to come to Green Bay because the Packers had just done something he didn't like. They fired Dom Capers, a close friend of Vic Fangio. But maybe time heals all wounds. Maybe Matt LaFleur coming to ask would be a little bit different than Mike McCarthy coming to ask because LaFleur didn't just fire his friend, Tom Capers. But I would take any of those three. And that is just the preference as of today. Maybe it changes tomorrow. Maybe it changes next week. What's your preference, though? 
I'm interested in in hearing what anybody's preferences are at this point because I think I think maybe maybe I'm just hoping, but I think the Packers are going to make a change at defensive coordinator. They've got it right. I mean, this is worse than how things ended in 2020. They have to, don't they? It's almost too scary to think about. Let's stop thinking about it because that's all I've got for you on this episode of Blue 58. I appreciate you listening in. I would appreciate it even more if you would take a second and share this episode with someone you think would enjoy it too. It's going to help more people find this show and get involved in the conversation that you and I are having about the Green Bay Packers, which in turn is going to help all of us, me included, become smarter Packers fans. And as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans, and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Meerdink. We'll see you next time on Blue 58.